I feel like that's I feel like that's where we're headed. Mike, can I drink on this podcast? Because I'm totally drinking right now. I'm I've I've got a more uh, I've got a what's the name? I've got a daiquiri. I I, I uh, nice. I grilled this afternoon and I made some daiquiris. Nice, because I, I w- no one can be a part of a podcast where we can't drink. That's like oh, a no, part no, of the is, thing, right? This is, uh, until we get sponsored, we're going to be sponsored by various alcohols. <laughs> All right, well, in that case, today's episode is brought to you by Grandma's, Old Grandma's Whiskey. Nice. Which is the cheapest whiskey I can, the cheapest whiskey I can still find on Fresh Direct. All right, so let's so let's let's pretend that we're we're gonna start the podcast and then okay, we'll have good. a couple moments where we'll, we may have to restart, but uh, we'll start with this uh, podcast is sponsored by by various alcohols. <laughs> nice. So yeah, this. Uh, just to be clear, though, that's that's probably not like original. I feel like lots of podcasts start by telling you what they're what they're drinking. True. I mean, but this is still the first episode. So this podcast is sponsored by Strawberry Daiquiri uh, on my end. And uh, on your end? Um, today's podcast is brought to you by Old Grandma's, which is like the highest proof whiskey, cheapest whiskey you can find on Amazon or Fresh Direct. Ah, see, for a second, I thought it was literal grandma recipe. And uh, <laughs> I've been, now I've learned the, the opposite is true. So uh, I'm Michael Ford. This is the Racial Draft Podcast. I'm the host, the regular host, and there's my special guest host, Marquis Keaton. Marquis, introduce yourself. Say uh, all the things that people need to know about you. Uh, so now Marquis, me and Mike have been friends for for what now? 15 years? It feels like it's a really long time or whatever. Mike and I work together. We share the same alma mater. Um, I'm not the level of expert that he is but I bring sort of a regular man perspective to the various topics that we'll be discussing on the cast. All right, cool, cool. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've told Marky the basics of the Racial Draft podcast, but feel free to just fire off any questions as I go through my spiel. Um, you know, the main spiel is the idea of repopulating the various comic book universes with um, more diverse lineups using the draft format um a lot of people have said there needs to be more diversity in comics there needs to be more gender diversity there needs to be more ethnic diversity and i'm a big fan of that and some people believe that the path to diversity is just creating a slew of new characters and while it is important to create new characters most of the characters have been around for decades and there's a process there's a process by which these characters that are created uh develop fan bases become a little bit more accepted into the national consciousness it's it's not a thing that can happen overnight with most characters so while that's happening if you want to really kind of increase the number of uh characters you're probably going to want to take existing characters that are white, that are male, that are straight, that are, you know, kind of the, in the generic cookie cold, cookie cutter model and uh, change them up a little bit too. Now, when I suggest something like that to a lot of people, often they get defensive, they get frustrated. They say, you know, don't want to take my characters and change them up. So I thought to myself, well, in other contexts, the way that we guard against not guard against, but, you know, protect something that people feel strong about. Um, you, you're, you're a sports fan. You know about expansion drafts. You know about the idea that if you're going to create a new team, uh, you're going to pick players off of, off of the various teams and they can protect certain players that are really important and the players that they choose not to protect are a fair game for other people to draft. And I thought, wow, what if we applied that same system to uh, fictional characters, to comic book characters? You know, if it was fair, if we were doing it at the beginning, you know, at the at the earliest stages, these characters would not be, you know, eighty to ninety percent white. If we were doing it at the outset, 
it would probably be a, split up a little bit more egalitarian. In the, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, I know exactly what you mean, but yeah. I, I got a question for the layman, though, on sure. this. For the people. Outside of Black Panther mm -hmm. and Storm, mm -hmm. are there lots of other diverse characters in comics already? There Do we are. need new ones? I mean, lots is, is, is no, there aren't lots. I mean, there are a fair amount. And, but, but again, most of them are not well-known or a little more obscure. And that kind of goes to my point. Um, one thing that happened, are you there? One thing that oh, no, that, don't worry. That's just my outside security grid. You can ignore that. It's fine. It's just a raccoon. One thing that's happened. I'll try to figure out a way to turn it off. <laughs> but one thing that's happened over recent years is that some of these more um, obscure, so to speak, characters have been kind of pushed to the forefront. And wouldn't you know it, some of the same critics uh, don't like that. You know, they like the established characters. They like the ones that have been around for 50, 60 years, and they don't particularly care for these upstarts getting, quote unquote, pushed down their throat, you know. Um, but these characters do exist, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of, of, of a lot of them. Um, so, in the, you know, the, the hope is that in the process of these discussions that, I, that we have, these characters will kind of come up, you know, offhand. I don't want to throw out too many. I don't want to, you know, overwhelm the listeners with, with a whole bunch of nerdery, but uh, you know, it'll come up. Stuff will carry. Well, you're gonna have to give us listeners a little bit of nerdery because well, I know from my perspective or whatever, I might have to do a little bit of Wikipedia research or whatever to get up on some of the characters because I, I might only know about like Black Panther and the teacher rights character just because I just watched Endgame. Okay. And that might be like the whole extent of my knowledge essentially. Well, that's all right. I mean, you know, obviously you're you're familiar with Luke Cage, and and uh, oh also. yeah, right, right, right. Oh, Luke Cage, how did I forget about that dude? Luke Cage, Misty Knight, Colleen Wing, um, Colleen Wing, who coincidentally is half Chinese, half Japanese. In the comic, or just on the show, they're like the in, same thing. No, in the comics, I'm not actually okay. sure what Jessica Henwick's background is. Um, I mean, I know she's Asian of some of some sort, but I'm not sure what the specific background is. But um, yeah, so you know, the the way, but the thought process here is that in the mix of there are certain characters that are you know iconic, and most of the iconic characters are white, and I totally get why if you're a white person, you might feel attached to these iconic characters but there are you know you can't have them all i don't know i mean i think it's probably not <laughs> probably not fair to say mine to every character that it has been created as white i mean i don't know if you i think we talked about this before but are you familiar at all with the iron fist uh controversy uh i think i got a little bit of so wait is the controversy just that the kid playing Iron Fist should be Asian and not white? Um, or is that totally wrong? That's, that's totally part, wrong. That no, sounds no, totally wrong. That's part of it. So, so, the, so the idea is that Iron Fist was created at a time when they didn't really think that an Asian actor could sell. I mean, not an Asian actor, sorry. An, an, an Asian kung fu character um, would be popular. So they created a white guy, a blonde-haired a uh, rich white guy, and they gave him the backstory that they gave him, and they sort of turned him into a, uh, a character. He really still didn't catch on until he was paired with Luke Cage. So it, if anything, it was probably the whole kind of like 70s buddy, uh, black guy, white guy dynamic that really led to the character becoming popular. But be that as it may, you know, over the years, a lot of Asian fans have felt that this character was essentially just, let's take a, a, a character that has a lot of Asian iconography around him and make him white and voila, there's our superhero. So there was a, a, a movement even before the show that to try to um, reimagine 
Iron Fist as an Asian American, not necessarily, you know, from Asia, but an American still who happened to have Asian um, ethnicity. And the, the idea was that in doing that, there would still be the conflict of him being an outsider to the culture that he was uh, raised in, you know, that he was raised as an Iron Fist in. But it wouldn't have that, it wouldn't touch on those uh, whitewashing elements that, you know, kind of pervade the culture. Um, All right, so, so just chime in here as someone who just watched Infinity War and Endgame again mm -hmm. this morning under quarantine. Mm -hmm. um, Hilda Swinton's character, right? Um, what is she, the mystic, the... The ancient one. The ancient one. The ancient one or whatever. Right. That is that not that's the same thing, right? Same thing's going on with that character. There was a controversy there too, right? Yeah, so with that character was slightly different. That character was created as a sort of elderly Asian man uh in the comics. And he bestowed uh Doctor Strange with his abilities, and it was very orientalist in the in in the process. In fact, one of the, the sort of things about Doctor Strange is that when he was initially created, there was some concern about whether he was going to be Asian. He was illustrated in a very exotic way. And then later they made him a white guy um, from, from, I think like Nebraska or something like that. But um, so there was a lot of- So Doctor Strange was originally white from the beginning. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. In the comics. Doctor Strange was, in his initial appearance was illustrated in a way that was racially and ethnically ambiguous. But, but then it, when they finally settled on what his background was going to be, they settled on it being a white guy. But a lot of his, his origin, you know, comes from this Orientalist ancient Tibetan monk um, iconography and history. And the ancient one was part of that. So, you know, there's a certain element to which he was just a stereotype. He was just a, you know, stereotype. Right. And, and I think what they were trying to go for in the Doctor Strange movie was to sort of move that character away from being a Asian stereotype. But in doing so, they ended up just making an Asian character white, which created a different controversy. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. There, there was no right answer for Doctor Strange, basically. Well, they probably could have gotten away with casting a non-white person than it would have been. You know, the novel idea that I had, actually, was that the Ancient One had a special kind of magic where, depending on who he was dealing with, or who they, you know, he or she was dealing with, the character would appear differently to different characters. So you know, to Doctor Strange, it would be Tilda Swinton. To Mordo, it would be another actor. To Wong, it would be another actor. And then they could basically say that the Ancient One encompasses all different uh, backgrounds and it's not an Asian stereotype. It's a magic character that can appear different ways at different times. Because let me just say, Mike, having just watched Infinity War, Mm -hmm. The only Asian character dealing with the mystic arts, his only lines involve wanting like a tuna milk sandwich in like the entire movie or whatever. Well, you know, Wong in the Swinton and it's Benedict Cumberbatch, and it's very strange that that's the center of the mystic arts universe in, in this iconic movie, essentially. But you know, Wong in the comics is basically just strange as manservant. Oh, well, okay, we're not making much progress there. <laughs> yeah, so... That's so he, not an improvement. Right. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, it, so he's he's come a little bit further than being uh, Alfred of uh, Doctor Strange. I guess he was supplying some of the money for the tuna milk sandwich, so I guess that is progress. He's Yeah, he's moved on to being his roommate. <laughs> exactly. He's, they're getting sandwiches as almost equals. Like... <laughs> like it's like a shared lunch at work. Okay, I guess I guess that's about it. Yeah, but um, yeah. So I mean, it, they, that just goes to show the level to which what they're up against is a very kind of white male centered universe 
where, you know, up until recently, when a character was created, they were the default was that they were a white guy, unless there was some reason that they were going to make them something other than that. And, you know, we, we have to, in order to move forward, we have to kind of flip that, I think. I think what you want to be doing is when you create a character now, sort of explain why a character would have to be, you know, white as opposed to fitting in with how the world actually is. I mean, there are far more people that are not white than people that are, you know. But so, so again, that's, that's a big part of the spiel on why I think that something like the racial draft is a, is a fun way to imagine what it would be like if your iconic characters were different, were different from what they have traditionally been imagined as, you know. So let me make sure I'm grasping this, Mike. Is the idea of whatever, if, if Captain America was, was black, essentially? Um, I mean, that would be one potential draft pick, right? So if you were, if you were let's say you were uh, the black team, uh, and you were drafting for for black people, you know you have your if it's if your pick is coming up, you have the opportunity to draft Captain America as a black guy, Steve Rogers rather, you know, because obviously Sam Wilson has been Captain America and he's about to be Captain America in the uh, upcoming show, but uh, it would be Steve Rogers, and then the, so that at that point the discussion sort of moves to well, what would it be like if Steve Rogers back in the 1940s was a black man, you know, how would that affect his story? It would, you know, obviously he'd be part of the, one of the segregated groups, <laughs> you know. Oh, so, so I guess what I'm hearing here, there's no way we're not going to talk about Watchmen on this podcast, which I feel like pretty much sort of like master taking on some of these, some of these issues or whatever and recontextualizing it. No, we should. Maybe I mean, one of the best things I've watched pretty much in the last 10, 15 years of my life. Well, I mean, I, I definitely think there's room to discuss Watchmen. Like Watchmen did a, did a masterful job of recontextualizing the first superhero in that universe as explaining that he had a very good justification for wanting to wear a mask <laughs> because... Exactly, yeah. And it, 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 was, it was something always a little bit clanny about the <laughs> about hooded justice, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So yeah. yeah, the way they did that was pretty masterful, right? Because you're like, well, as a, as a young person reading Watchmen the comic, it was sort of like, oh, that's a disturbing image for me. It conjures up things for me as a black person growing up in the South, which I'm sure you sort of like can understand, sort of relate to. I know you're a little bit of a northerner. Mike, but you, you get this idea that, that imagery conjures up lots of things for, for Black people reading Watchmen the comic, right. right? So the way they did it, the way they reversed it, and that reveal was so masterful. I just feel like it was it was very powerful, powerful stuff or whatever. So it definitely feels like it feeds into sort of which, what we might be trying to do here, you know? No, I, I agree 100%. I mean, it's the, it's the idea that you, by, by making the character, by reimagining the character, and and his or her origin in in that way you can add these layers that make them potentially less problematic or just make them more complex make them more interesting you know like you said a, a character you know like a good example is a, a character like the punisher you know the punisher growing up in new york in the in the late you know in the mid 80s like all I could do when the Punisher came out was think about Bernard Getz, you know, think about that kind of uh, white guy with a gun dispensing street justice. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, many white supremacist groups and many uh, white supremacist leaning law enforcement groups have embraced the Punisher logo as something that they're about. And right. And it makes me, as a black man, not really want to support the Punisher, despite you know there being some interesting things about the character. It's just the, just that association is is is, uh, is kind of problematic for me. Um, 
And I often wonder how different the Punisher would be received if he were not a white man. Right. You know, down to the kinds of the kinds of threats that he might go after. Yeah, I get that. But again, I guess my other question would be, is the Punisher really a mainstream comic? Because I almost sort of feel like for for the masses or whatever, Punisher's not really high up there sort of on the hierarchy of comic book heroes anyway. So in a certain sort of sense, it's a bit, it was sort of perfect to be sort of adopted by alt-right sort of marginalized groups in society essentially because it's not really on the top tier of comic book heroes anyway. Um, Yeah, I would say that in recent years, the Punisher has sort of dipped in popularity. But in the in the eighties and the early nineties, when it was an edgier, you know, edgier time, the Punisher was up there as far as popular characters. All so, right. And you know, I mean, people our age kind of came into comics at that time. And now obviously people our age are in various corridors of power. <laughs> and it, it wouldn't it wouldn't yeah, be yeah, shocked if if those people grew up as fans of the Punisher. I mean, obviously, big pun. <laughs> like he's, yeah, I yeah, I'm right. I forgot right. about him. You know? Although I feel like I probably have never made that connection in my entire life that big pun is from Punisher. I feel like I, I, I just, you just, that's my new knowledge of the day. I probably never made that association in my entire life. That oh, yeah, when he, like he was originally, for that knowledge. yeah, he was originally big Punisher and he used to wear a Punisher logo. Uh, when he when he first came out, and I don't know if you remember the the first album, like one of the um, the skits on the first album, it has like the little kid talking about like different characters, and he's like, the "Punisher, Punisher's gonna beat everybody. He's gonna take everybody out." It was from uh, the movie uh, Juice. No, not not Juice. Um, oh man, what's the movie with the the kid who's play ch- plays chess? Um, with Giancarlo Esposito. Um, no, I definitely remember lots of movies with kids playing chess, but no names, obviously. <laughs> uh, it's gonna, it's gonna bother me. I'm looking it up. I'm googling it. Well, my only point about Big Pun is, I actually thought that his name really was because he's a rapper and he likes to make puns. Like, I literally thought that's what his name was about. Like, plays on, plays on words essentially. Like, I'm, I make big puns, you know. And then I thought his rap style was just, you know, riffing on words and. That's all I thought that was, you know? Because he, he's a, is he a New Yorker? I assume he's a New Yorker. Yeah, he's from the Bronx. Punisher. He's from the Bronx. Yeah, see, I'm a Southerner. So, like, to me, that sort of history or whatever, the whole, like, I don't remember the skits from his CD or whatever. I really thought his name was just about wordplay. So, <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. So, so the, movie, the movie was Fresh. That was the name of the movie. I don't know if you've seen it. Ah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah, a good movie. Is yeah. Sam Jackson in that? I think so. I the answer is probably yes, because Sam Jackson's in everything. So. Yes, probably. Right. And speaking of Sam Jackson, I mean, that's a good transition to someone like Nick Fury, you know, who was traditionally a white guy. And they made Nick Fury black in in the comics for one of these. Uh, it was, are you familiar with the Ultimate Universe? Mm, not so much, but I am familiar with a little bit of controversy about Sam Jackson being cast as Nick Fury when that was originally announced back in the day. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, so the, so I'll give you the background of the Ultimate Universe. The, the Ultimate Universe was a universe that Marvel tried to create to um, kind of streamline things for new readers. So they, they basically, they kept their existing universe, their, their mainstream universe, and they created a universe from almost scratch. Um, where everything was sort of set in the present day. And this would have been, you know, early 2000s. And it's what they, what they did is they tried, to, they tried to modernize things. They tried to create a Marvel universe that was more of the moment and less of the, of the past. And a lot of characters, in fact, were race-bent and were more, um, you know, more diverse. Um, they, you know, they had a Spider-Man that eventually... Uh, he, you know, he started out as 15, as a little kid. Um, he, he eventually died, though, and that's where Miles Morales came from. Miles Morales was the kid who, um, you know, got bit by a similar 
radioactive spider and then he saw uh, Spider-Man die while he was fighting the Green Goblin and he decided that he needed to uh, kind of pick up the mantle. You know, they somewhat adapted it in the Into the Spider-Verse movie um, in in terms of Miles' origin of becoming Spider-Man, but there were other characters that had, you know, went through similar arcs in the Ultimate Universe. And what they did with Nick Fury is, I guess, the guy who was who was writing it, I think it was Brian Michael Bendis, but I don't quote me on that, uh, was a fan of Samuel L. Jackson. And he decided, wouldn't it be cool if Nick Fury looked like Samuel L. Jackson? So he created the Nick Fury in the Ultimate Universe um, modeled after Samuel L. And then later, when time when the time came to do the movies, they actually cast him. So it was kind of full circle on that. So it was well, I get that. I guess my question would be about that is, so yes, Sam Jackson is Nick Fury, right? Mm-hmm. So it is sort of sort of like recasting of a character that in my head, as a layman, I associate with David Hasselhoff for some reason. <laughs> I don't quite know why I associate with that. There's a weird movie with David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury or something, right? Yeah, he did a TV like, movie back in the 90s, I think. Back when... Okay, so, so fair enough then, Mike, but I guess my question would be if we're going to if we're going to make Sam Jackson Nick Fury and we recontextualize it as, well, there's a black person paying Nick Fury, but we're never going to mention race at all, what was the point? What did we achieve? Why did we do that? If, if race doesn't have anything to do with the character, is it just to show the character as a black person having this high role in this universe? Because I don't think race has ever come up in any of the Marvel Marvel movies, right? Other than of course, Black Panther, but that's like its own podcast, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, so I, I, I know what you mean, and I think that I think you want to be careful in general of when you have a character be um, not white to make to have race be sort of a primary driver of the character. Right. I mean, I think that the character of Nick Fury in the comics doesn't have the gravitas that Samuel L. Jackson has. So it's really more about the fact that Nick Fury's brings a, you know, a je ne sais quoi through- Gravitas. Right, exactly. Through the performance by Samuel L. Jackson that, that for instance, David Hasselhoff wouldn't bring, <laughs> you know, Right. And, like he he kind of embodies a certain kind of cool that I think that at that point Marvel probably needed when it was establishing itself as a movie brand. It's like, oh, this is Samuel Jackson with an eye patch, uh, coming out of the shadows and talking about the Avengers. That's I'm intrigued. You know. Maybe there are other actors that could have brought that to the table but you know i can't think of too many offhand that would have you know you know samuel samuel is samuel he's he's got he's he's on the verge of saying motherfucker at every well, he's the man he's you know he's obviously obviously the dude is a great actor right yeah obviously the dude brings a lot to whatever part whatever part he's playing it i i guess sort of part of the thing with nick fury is I don't think that the context of Nick Fury being black has ever sort of explicitly come up with his characterization. Like nobody's like, oh, you're Nick Fury and you're black, but it's obvious he's Sam Jackson and he's playing a black person. So I started to get that. But like in general, the level of complexity with these characterizations is actually pretty interesting to me because I know me and my wife recently were sort of discussing the whole thing with the new storm and how people sort of hate her. Because yeah. of certain, yeah, right. Like, I mean, yeah. um, so I mean, it's, it's just there's a lot of complexity in this, even for characters who sort of are like historically black. Storm is historically black, but apparently, what there's an issue about whether she's dark skinned enough, light skinned enough, or whatever to actually be playing Storm. That's weird because we didn't hate Halle Berry, and Halle Berry is clearly a light skinned Storm 
I mean, right? we so, kind of um, we kind of did hate Halle Berry a little bit. No, that's wrong, man. We love Halle Berry. That's but totally we, wrong. What I'm, is, what I'm saying is that we love Halle Berry, full stop. But Halle Berry, like, full stop. Yeah. So, but the thing is, back back, everyone's first choice back then was Angela Bassett, and I only found this out. Huh. I only found no, more. I didn't know later, but apparently Angela Bassett passed on it. Um, which, ah. which I didn't know. Did know for many years, I was very angry with uh, with with Fox for casting Holly Berry instead of instead of um, Angela Bassett because Angela Bassett has all the intangibles that people wanted. In- the gravitas, exactly. Right. You know, uh, Halle Berry was it was. That role was above her head. It just was. I mean, we like Hallie, but we, I felt, and a lot of people felt, that it wasn't really just about the light skin factor as much as it was about the lack of gravitas. And Am I misremembering, Mike? Because I feel like this new girl, and I don't know her name. And, uh, uh, better. Alexandra Ship. Yeah, I feel like this, the backlash she has received has been way more severe than I remember for Halle Berry. But I wonder if that's a function of our times. And Halle Berry didn't start in X-Men during the social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever era. So maybe this is what would have happened if Halle Berry had been cast in that today. Well, I think it didn't help that, I mean, Halle at that point, I think had already won her Oscar. So she had a little bit more respect as an actress, even if she wasn't people's first choice. Whereas Angela, uh, sorry, Alexandra Shipp, the only thing she's done, as far as um, I can remember, is play Aaliyah in a TV movie that nobody liked. Right. So it wasn't, people felt like she was chosen because she was light-skinned and pretty and not for any kind of acting chops. And, and to compound matters, her, this, and like you said, in the social media era, um, her response on social media was not, in the way that a lot of people would like it to be when a celebrity is criticized. Um, she kind of did a, a, a lot of like, what was me? Um, just give me a chance. Um, right. I don't understand what, like, I'm not privileged. I, you know, I'm light skinned, black is black. And, you know, like when it comes to light skinned privilege and characters generally being, um, lightened up that this is this is actually a thing that's been happening in the comics for a while now where black characters um often get colored in such a way over time to be lighter and and it sort of reaches a point where people forget that you know a character that might have started out as your complexion might all of a sudden be three or four shades lighter you know, it happens to male characters as well. I don't know if you're familiar with the character Sunspot in in the X. Oh no, no, no! Tell me more. So Sunspot, his his name is uh, Roberto da Costa. He's a Brazilian, uh, but he's a black Brazilian. Uh, right from the beginning, from he was one of the uh, early uh, New Mutants characters. So one of the young mutants who followed in the footsteps of the X Men. Um, he's rich, but he's black and he's Brazilian, and he dealt with racism in his early days and then he developed mutant powers um which uh, it's it's it, they're sort of i mean it's, it's it, the, the their solar power um fire based powers um but his character is that of kind of like a, a cocky um rich kid but he has this thing that you know he's he still knows that he's subject to that kind of discrimination. Well, as the years have gone by, he's been illustrated to look more and more racially ambiguous. And and it culminated in, you know how there's a new Mutants movie coming out? Oh yeah, yeah, the one that will never actually get released. I'm familiar with the story. (laughs) So, So the actor that they cast to play uh, Roberto da Costa in the movie is Brazilian, but he's not black. Oh, he's I see what they did there. Yeah, they 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 went full they went full white, 
Full um, whitewash. Yeah, full whitewash. But it, but the problem is that over time, you know, I can show you these panels. Roberto Costa, that you can see from his earliest appearance to um, appearances from about five years ago, where it's just lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. And there was even one one panel where he looked like a, you know, not not a white guy, but a you know maybe maybe a tan white guy, <laughs> you know. So 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 what's the deal, Mike? Is that racism? Is that unintentional, or is that unintentional racism? I think it's. I think that when you have. Don't forget to save your answer for the next podcast. <laughs> you know we gotta do teasers. Yeah. Gotta do teasers no, I, on this. I think when you have creative i think when you have creative people who are not conscious about about the importance of race right you it it, it it's easy for these kinds of things to happen I've, in fact there was a recent comic a few months ago where storm was illustrated to be very light right and you know people rightfully got upset about it but it, it, it again it comes to the idea that when you have a lot of people that are not race conscious on these creative teams they let it, it's not important to them. Right. So, and I understand why someone would say, well, Roberto's defining characteristic is that he's a cocky Brazilian rich guy. Um, maybe the fact that he's black isn't that important. But in fact, he's one of the, he's one of very few black X-Men lore type characters. He preceded Bishop, in fact. Right. Um, and as a black man, as someone who notices that the X-Men is, 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 is always meant to stand in for marginalized people and minorities, it, it is always somewhat stuck in my craw that the majority of the characters are, are white or white uh, presenting, even as they present this allegory. So it's nice when there are X-Men and mutants that are of different backgrounds. And, you know, over in recent years, they've, they've done better about that. But this goes right. to the point about how in the earliest stages, the diversity was secondary. And although ironically, the diversity is what led to X-Men becoming more popular. When, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but when the X-Men first came out, uh, with the original five, with the, you know, four white guys and a, and a white woman, like the book was in danger of being canceled. When they came out with the second wave with Storm, Colossus, Wolverine, and, and those folks, that's when X-Men started to become more popular. You know, it was, it, the X-Men has always really been about diversity and less about white people. But there are a lot of white so, people like the X-Men. <laughs> well, you know, potentially fake fact here, but I, I think it's a fact. Uh, movies with diverse casts perform better at the box office. Yeah. So yeah. even though, like, we, we sit here, you know, fighting this, like it's some sort of, like, wokeness, sort of social justice, whatever, the truth is people actually want to see movies that are representative of society. They go to see these movies and they enjoy these movies. That's why fast and furious movies can be absolute trash and still make a billion dollars every time out. All Turns right. out you are not like, going to, you're not going to mock fast and furious. Those things. Oh, oh wait, I'm sorry. That may be off topic. All right. <laughs> off topic. Um, apologies. Furious movies are those movies are trash though. Those movies yeah. are trash. I'm sorry. Look, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, Pass a rule that flat, Fast and Furious movies <laughs> as superhero movies. <laughs> the cars, the cars are the superheroes. Cars don't fly. <laughs> In the Fast and the Furious universe, they do. Like, I would love to see Fast and the Furious crossover with Ghost Rider. Um, uh, at this point, you're probably going to get that. Fast and Furious Ten is definitely in space. You heard it here first. Uh, well, they've been saying it for like five years. So, I mean, they already brought Han back from the dead. I feel like there's either time travel or space travel happening. It's ridiculous. In this fast, in this it's fast ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. It, doesn't, it can be awful or it can be entertaining or it can be awfully entertaining. And that's what Fast and Furious movies are, I guess. But like you said, when they started to, you know, when they really went in with the diverse cast and they were bringing, you know, 
to the point where there was just one white guy in the whole crew. Yeah. That's when the fast movies really started to take off in popularity worldwide. What's strange is, I, I, and they've really leaned into it, like Hobbs and Shaw with the sort of cultural elements in there. Those are things I never would have even thought of as being in a mainstream blockbuster. Now, the movie is fairly lackluster. Right. from an objective standpoint or whatever. But it is it is interesting to see those sort of historical cultural aspects be a part of a mainstream $200 million Hollywood blockbuster now. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, no, it's very interesting, and, I'm, and I'd like to see more of it. You know, and Just I, in a better, better script. Well, yeah. Well, better, better material for Idris Elba and, and, and yeah. such. Yeah. Black Superman. <laughs> Black Superman. I mean, that line is funny. Yeah, that movie is. The movie is trash, though. This is how bad that movie is. Like that—that's a bad plane movie. And if a movie's not entertaining on a plane, it, it's awful. Like if you're bored on a plane, where you're desperately seeking entertainment more than you've ever sought it in your life, that's not not such a great movie. All right. Uh, I, I liked Hobbs and, Sh- and Shaw. I mean, I didn't hate Hobbs and Shaw, and it certainly would be a weird thing to pretend like Fast and Furious movies should be good. But I have this sort of weird bug. And you know this about me, Mike. I have this sort of weird bug where I'm like always picturing the better movie in my head. The movie that could have been. And the most frustrating thing for me as a person who loves entertainment is things that were almost good or where I could see with just a little bit more effort on the script, you could have made a good movie. Um, And pretty much every single Fast and Furious movie is like that. Where at some point we just gave up on the script and didn't care. Let's just have a submarine jumping through ice. You know, like we, we don't care anymore. And that's fine. It's entertaining. But there's an alternate universe where people focus on the script and make blockbusters that are also sort of logically consistent and that make sense and emotionally resonant. And, you know, it's my soapbox that I want to live in that particular universe. <laughs> I feel you. I mean, that is fair. I mean, it's a, it, to, to that end, like, you know, there's been a lot of talk about putting movies on streaming platforms. Yes, and you know how I feel about this, so. I don't know how you feel about this. I feel like we've talked about it before. I think I've said for a long time that the studios should not waste their time. It should be day and day. If you want to go see it in the movie, nothing will ever take away people from wanting to go see the movie theater. But just charge me $50 so I can watch X-Men at home in my house, in the comfort of my house, and cut out the middleman. Okay. Just do both. Yeah, Just do so, both. Release. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we're. I think we're. I'll pay a premium for that. Yeah, I think we're on the same point about that. Then, like, my argument is generally the same as yours, except the importance of the premium price, because you don't want to cannibalize your model, especially g- given the fact that piracy is a thing. Um, Doesn't matter anymore, Mike, because we're in the coronaverse now. So no one's going to be going to movie theaters anymore and they're going to have to just release their movies immediately now. I don't think this so. Is, this is where we're at. I think, I think movies... It's already happened. I see it all. Invisible Man. All these movies are just popping up. Birds of Prey. It's but already happening, movies, Mike. Movies that are, have already come out in the theaters. I'm just saying that if a movie has not yet come out, like Fast and the Furious, they pushed it back a year. You know, because that's a movie that really deserves to be watched on the big screen. Okay, Mike, but word on the street, word on the street, Wonder Woman, one of the hugest blockbusters of the year, you would agree with me, might potentially be straight to digital. See? Word on the street. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. I didn't hear it here. I didn't hear it here first. I heard it. That's the word word on the street, Mike. I heard it two days ago on the internet, and then they (laughs) immediately debunked it to all the trades. It's, it's, listen. Oh, yeah. I mean, if people are going back to theaters, then yes, obviously they wouldn't give up that model. Right. But the thing is, the real yes, life may have overtaken them. Yes, preliminary discussions have been had about it. I'm sure every movie, there have been discussions about it. Like, what do we do if six months from now, nobody's going to the movies? Yeah, that, then you've got you've to make tough choices. But, but that's, that's a problem for six months from now. It's not a problem, you know, you don't announce that you're going to punt off $800 million by putting it in a, you know, by putting it on, on a pay-per-view. Like you, you exist. Not until you have to, but Mike, tell Not, me this, yeah. tell me this, Mike, you wouldn't pay $50 to see Wonder Woman opening night at home. Oh, I mean, 
probably. That's what it's going to cost you to go see it at the movies, right? Once you get your two tickets and your couple of popcorns and your soda, you're over 50 bucks. People will pay that just to stay at home and watch it on their 70-inch television. I mean, for me personally, I still like going to, I still like the whole experience of going to the movies. So I could see going once at the theater and then subsequent viewings in my home. You know, like I, I like, I still like the whole IMAX giant screen, uh, full sensory overload experience for a lot of movies. Um, yeah, but for smaller movies, for smaller movies, for sure. A movie like Invisible Man, like I'm probably going to pay, you know, the 20 bucks and watch it, um, you know, because it does seem kind of cool. And I never got a chance to see it in the theaters. Yeah. The, I think the mid-tier movies are going to be the ones that end up that end up on this on the streaming universe. I think the mid-tier movies are going to be the ones, but I think eventually it's going to have to be everything. And you know the main reason, Mike? The main reason is that people are trashed and watching movies with them opening weekend is often awful. Not only are they passing off coronavirus, they're on their cell phones, they're loud, uh, their kids are annoying. Even though they're reserved seats, they can't figure out where they're supposed to sit. They know they're sitting in the wrong seat and they're waiting for someone to come tell them they're in the wrong seat 10 minutes into the movie. People are trash. Going to movies with them is often trash. That is why these movies need to be offered at home in the comfort of your home where you don't have to deal with these other trash people who know damn well they're sitting in the wrong seat, Mike. And I've seen this, I see this every single time I go to an opening weekend movie. I thought reserve seating would fix, fix this, but it doesn't because people purposely sit in the wrong seat wow. and then get righteously indignant about it. It's a horrible experience. And you're counting on these poor ushers to deal with this or the poor ushers to have to go to security to address this and who wants to deal with that as an experience? I personally, and I think lots of other people, would just pay the premium, give me Wonder Woman at home. I got a sound bar. I got a 60-inch, 70-inch television or whatever. I can make my own popcorn that doesn't cost $20. This is the wave of the future, Mike. Don't fight it. Embrace it. There'll still be people who want to go opening weekend to see it, but it should be day and day. Wonder Woman can come out on big screens, and, and if you go see it on the big screen, you save a little money. And that's totally fine. And that's the trade-off. It's a little cheaper for you because you want to go support it on that platform. So it's only going to cost you $20 to go see Wonder Woman if you go to the theater. If I want to see it at home, it's going to cost me $50. I'm fine with that trade-off. I don't, I don't see why that's not the direction we're moving in. I mean, I think... I think I know we're off topic. I know this is a non-sequitur, but... You know, no, this no, is no, what I'm so it's, it's listen, it's it's a good soapbox to be on and I and for the most part I agree. I think it is the wave of the future. I just don't know if the future is now yet. I don't think the infrastructure is there yet, especially not internationally. You know, we, we, we you know bring well around. domestically, I don't I don't know about that because like Netflix is everywhere, right? Like I feel like video on demand is almost everywhere, right? Like I no, mean, no. You see, Netflix is different from video on demand. Like a lot of countries don't have a video on demand culture. They have a Netflix culture, you know, a, right. you know, stream anything for one price, but the idea of dropping 50 bucks to see a movie, they'll still, they still want to go to the theaters. You know? Well, I still want to go to theaters. I, I hope the world hasn't, hasn't come to an end and we can't do that anymore. Right. Yeah. I want to go every now and then, but I don't want to deal with the crowds of opening weekend and the stupidity and the silliness of it. I want to go see a blockbuster three or four weeks later when I don't have to deal with all that insanity. Yeah, I, you know me, I'm, I'm, I'm too immersed in internet culture. I need to see it as soon as possible before Twitter spoils me. I know, but you probably saw Rise of Skywalker three or four times and you know what? Yeah, I, you. I only saw Rise of Skywalker <laughs> twice. Um, yeah, because it's not that good, right? You know what it's like? It's one of those movies where you're like, oh, that was okay. I was pretty entertained. And then you never think about it ever again. Well, It's totally like, I thought that was better. I thought I had a better time than I did because I don't think about this movie at all anymore. Well, I, honestly, for me specifically, the, the reason I didn't go back was because seeing everyone fight about it on the internet for the for the last uh however many weeks just took all my joy away and normally when i see star wars movies they're a source of great joy 
And I just wasn't in the headspace to watch it because I was, I felt like I was Star Wars out. I felt like every, everyone was talking about, I mean, I, I thought it was, yes, the movie had flaws. Um, but I, overall, I still had a good time, but I just didn't want to, I just was, was, was over it. I just wanted to be done. I just wanted, I just wanted to, to end and just focus on the Mandalorian, something that everyone, something that everyone loved. Well, hot tip, hot tip, man. I heard it on the internet. Apparently, they're working on a, 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 another movie with Ray. So, I mean, there's, there's going to be more. Because the mainline franchise makes over a billion dollars a movie, no matter how bad people pretend to say it is or how much they pretend to say they hated it. I mean... It makes way more money than Solo. Fair. I mean, look, I still don't understand why people ride for the prequels. Um, but people, people are out there. People are out there that ride for the prequels. And um, knowing that, listen, it's like a 40% trash rate if we're, if we're talking about Star Wars movies. And we love it, regardless. I mean, if Fast and the Furious, Star Wars. <laughs> right, you know? right. But, but just to be clear, Star Wars is sort of on topic, right? This is a, this is a superhero franchise that has essentially been recontextualized for a modern era with a female lead and a person of color as the lead as the lead role, right? So yeah. this is this is squarely in the, the, the topical wheelhouse, I think, right? Yeah. Star Wars is a superhero yeah. franchise, right? Listen, and don't and listen, don't forget Poe. Poe is Latino. Yeah, there you go. No. There you go. Which I, I know there's a there's a huge amount of internet backlash. There's some backlash against this, right? Like people feel like they're they're sort of doing this on purpose forcing sort of this modern perspective on gender and race oh. onto people. Oh yeah, right from the inception, from the from the Force Awakens, there was a backlash. Right. And you know, I think part of I think part of why Star Wars has turned into culture war is that, you know, this this new trilogy has been a battling ground for the people who feel like Star Wars is theirs and the people who felt like, you know, Hey, isn't it great that there's a Star Wars universe that now reflects um, our world? But you know, it's a shame that it's a shame that the Rise of Skywalker ended up being not as great as it could have been, because the the narrative was that the the old school folks won, which I don't necessarily agree with, but. I get why people feel that way. Honestly, I don't know how to feel about Last Jedi anymore after watching Rise of Skywalker. Because I thought I had problems with Last Jedi when I watched it originally. I was sort of like, oh, well, I don't know why, but that movie was a little boring, right? Um, And then I watched Rise of Skywalker, and I was like, huh, I don't know why, but that movie doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Uh, So I actually... Actually, when I put the two together, they don't really fit, and I don't know what works. I think I sort of wish I lived in a universe where J.J. had just done all three of them to a particular vision. Yeah. So it was a cohesive story. If, if, he, if J.J. or Ryan had just done... Had done all three, exactly. Done all yeah. three, yeah. Like, and it's weird because I... Obviously... Obviously, there were other voices in the original trilogy... But I guess because George, because at the end of the day, it all came from George, they they was able to tie together better. And because with this, there were there were some overarching ideas I be, I believe were present, but there was no there was no one saying, all right, how are we gonna make these three movies be one story? How do you make a trilogy without like this of this magnitude, the most important franchise in the universe, without a show bible? without a Bible for the trilogy. I don't even get it. Like, I don't even understand how this could be a thing where we're just like figuring it out movie to movie. It's so strange to me what happened with this iteration of Star Wars. Well, right, but I think what I'm saying is I think they had loose, I think they had loose parameters of where they wanted to go. Um, but I'm not convinced, Mike, because it doesn't seem like they plan to bring Palpatine back in the final movie. It feels like Abrams just decided to do that when he ended up back on board for the third movie. And you would agree with me, that's pretty freaking essential, right? 
to know from the first movie if Palpatine is coming back, right? Yeah, but I think it doesn't seem like they I planned think, that. No, but I think Palpatine was in Trevorrow's script. Is well, I thought that would happen with Trevorrow's script, but it's not Palpatine all the way back. It was sort of like the shadow or the ghost. I don't know. I didn't read Trevorrow's script on the internet, so you will know way more. Oh, I didn't read it either because I didn't want to. Again, I'm I'm I try to I'm trying to just focus on the Star Wars stuff that I love, and <laughs> right. And, well, and, I mean, I've heard Trevorrow's script is good, but the people who hate Rise of Skywalker will say will say that Trevorrow's script is the second coming of Christ. Because they just want to hate on they want to hate on Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. But my my only point is I don't feel like the idea that Palpatine was coming back was a known thing from Force Awakens, and that is a problem to me. Like I mean, you you need to know the sort of final main art of your major new trilogy in yeah, the beginning and well, not be winged. But what's weird is that like you know with with even in. Um, the, what's his name, even in The Force Awakens, there were a lot of people, myself included, that felt like Snoke was was just a a Palpatine redux. Right. You know, so the idea that he was somehow a creation of, or a clone of, or some kind of um, thing that was Palpatine adjacent wasn't that far removed from what I would have expected after just watching The Force Awakens? I think the concern is, I think the concern is that Ryan Johnson didn't have that in mind and there are no clues. I, I think people felt like if Abrams was directing all three, there would have been more to lead you to that. Yeah, there would have been more breadcrumbs. It sure. wouldn't have felt so jarring and so abrupt. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, they, like, yeah, especially, just, especially in one of like Ray's visions or something like that, they would have kind of, sprinkled in a breadcrumb or two to make you think, hmm, this is very Palpatine-y. Yeah. You know, but yeah, I guess we're a little off topic, which is fine. I mean, yeah, yeah. So I was going to tell you, your, your, your first comments, our first comments are going to be like, hey, these guys don't even know what the topic of this podcast is or whatever, but I'm going to tell those guys in the comments they're totally wrong. We're totally on topic. And if you listen to it again, you'll totally catch up with that. You'll totally catch up that we're totally, totally on topic. So it's, it's totally fine. We're only slightly off topic. Right. Totally and, fine. and the best part about what Mark, he said is listen to it again. Uh, <laughs> with friends, hit the replay button and um, yeah. And feel free to hit me up on Twitter, uh, MTFIII and yell at me as much as you want. Um, I don't think Mark, he is on Twitter. No, nope, I'm not on the Twitter box, and uh, I don't know how to use all of the the internet stuff yet. But you know, I'm a work in progress, so yeah. uh, you know, I'll figure it all out. But speaking of a work in progress, hopefully uh, this podcast continues to evolve. I mean, there's there's actually going to be more structure in future episodes. I'm still we're still kind of formulating our teams and our uh, one of the things that I was going to bring up is that every every. Uh, the goal is to have every racial group or ethnic group identified and uh, have a, a captain uh, to draft for that team. So I'm still recruiting people, uh, listener out, people, listeners out there in the world. If you if you happen to be uh, from a, a different ethnic group and you'd like to uh, be part of the racial draft, uh, hit me up on Twitter or hit up the uh, email address racialdraftpodcast at gmail.com and um, we can talk about it. Um, but until until we've got all our teams lined up, we're not going to be doing any drafting yet. We're just going to be doing a lot of talking about drafting. Um, since we're going to, I mean, before we close it down, I'd like to hear your ideas as as, as a as a black person <laughs> for uh, characters that you <laughs> that you think would be uh, interesting to uh, draft uh, on the on the black team. Huh, I gotta, I gotta really think about that for a while. So I'll have to sort of uh, process. It's sort of exciting, I, I guess. As an X Men person, um, I'm gonna draft. I'm gonna draft Logan. You know, I'm oh, gonna draft Logan okay. Wolverine. A, a black Wolverine. You know? okay. I feel like he already has that edge. He already has that. That ink. he's already got. You know, sort of that sort of like, you know, anger about the world. So I think there's That's a cool. lot of overlay there that yeah. would actually be quite, quite interesting. You know, as a fel as a fellow short man, you know, uh, Wolverine. Does, uh, 
does have the, the little bit of a Napoleon complex. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure as a, as a short black man, he's probably uh, got even more rage. <laughs> yes. Yes. Imagine that character even more angry. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. That's, that's cool. All right. So um, I guess we're going to shut the show down. Do you have any uh, last words for the, for the people? No, man, I'm just a guest. I'm living in your world. I'm, I'm enjoying contributing a little bit of the layman's perspective to this thing or whatever. Um, and it's been fun. I hope people can take something from it and um, enjoy it. All right. Well, th- that's been uh, the Racial Draft Podcast. Uh, episode, we'll call it 1B. <laughs> and, uh, 1.5. Yeah, 1.5. <laughs> and uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. Woo!